0: Friends, the death of Jesus is the most encouraging thing in the history of the world because it means our debt has been permanently satisfied, that our sins have been nailed to the cross. And the even better news is that Jesus who died for us was also raised. One of my favorite things about this verse, and I feel like it's something that we ought to repeat regularly, is that Jesus says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, whoever heard of a dead man coming back? But Jesus rose, and he will come back. And so as we remember this moment of sacrifice for us, it's with hope in the coming of Jesus Christ that this memory is forward-looking to the day when we see him face-to-face. One of the things we have traditionally done Uh, is we used to pass a plate. Maybe we'll get back to that at some point. I don't know. Uh, But during a communion Sunday, we want to remember as the Lord has loved us and met our deepest spiritual need, that we want to then take the love of God and offer it to other people around us. So we have traditionally collected a benevolence offering, and most of that goes to purchase food, and to supply the needs of our benevolence ministries for our community. So we've been able to help and bless thousands of people over the past year and during the pandemic. And really, those ministries began over a decade before I was here. And so for decades, our church has been faithfully loving the community. If you would like to give to our benevolence ministry, there are two ways you can do that. Uh, You can designate with our online giving. There's a little drop-down menu, and you could say, I'd like these funds to go particularly to Benevolence. Or uh, we've got these little urns in the back that have a a tag on that says giving. All you've got to do is just write on a little envelope. Uh, It can be your own envelope, or we have giving envelopes as a church, and just specifically state, I would like these funds to go to the Benevolence Fund, and we'll make sure that we use that money to purchase food or to help with shut-off notices or eviction notices to bless those who are in great financial need. If you'd like to give to the ministry of our church, that's also the same, same way. I, I probably don't mention it as often as I should as a way of worshiping the Lord, uh, but I want to say thank you for all of your faithfulness in giving. It's another aspect of our worship. Because of what God has done for us, we give to support the work of the ministry here and around the world. As we continue in our service today, uh, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Ephesians for our scripture reading. I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 for just a moment. Uh, And before I read anything, um, the sermon that I'm about to preach is connected to at least three other sermons that I have preached previously. Um, And so I want to say, if this is the only message you have ever heard, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to a few of the other messages in this series. Uh, I am preaching through 1 Timothy because I believe that as we follow the instructions God has given us for how our church is to function and operate, we will be richly blessed. I believe that it's right and good to seek to raise up disciple-making people so that the church is equipped not only to reach the community, but for the difficult trials that God calls every believer to walk through. I believe the Word of God must be our foundation when things are difficult. And in order to faithfully teach and to faithfully disciple, we need a team of people equipped to do that. And I believe the best way to develop that team is to devote ourselves to the book of 1 Timothy to see how God gives us instructions for his house. If there's a theme verse for this book and this series, you can find it in chapter 3. Paul says very clearly, why he wrote young Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 14, he said, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul is giving instructions that apply to every church, in every time, in every place, so that we know how to behave, how we relate to the leadership of the church, what the leadership of the church should look like and what they should do, and how the church should function as it relates to the Word of God. And so I believe this is a pivotal book for our church and in this moment in our church, and I am about to preach some of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible to preach. So I'd ask that you pray for me. Before we go there, I want to read a few verses from the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Friends, I believe this passage of scripture is one of the most important in all the New Testament for the life of every Christian, married or single, young or old, I believe this passage relates the love that Christ has for the church to every home and household. You might say, you know what, I grew up in a home that was highly dysfunctional. Maybe you didn't have a mom or a dad, maybe there was substance abuse, maybe there was physical abuse. You might say, how does this passage that describes a beautiful picture of love apply to me and help me? Well, friend, I believe what it does for you, and I want to say this carefully because I don't want to minimize your pain, but I believe what it does for you is it holds out the beautiful hope that what you experienced is not what God intended, that there is something better and richer out there for you. I believe what it says most clearly for every Christian is that Jesus Christ is never, never, never. Going to forsake his church, that he gave himself for her. Philippians says, He who began a good work in you, and he's speaking to the whole church, not just to a believer, he who began a good work in you will see it to the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete it. And so the hope for the church worldwide, globally, is that Jesus is a faithful husband who loves his bride deeply and sacrificially. He gave himself for her. And not only did he give himself for her when he died on the cross, but he is committed to her, to preparing her for that great day when we see him face to face. I don't know if you caught it. It said that that he is purifying her with the water of the word. That's what we're doing right now. You and I, we have all kinds of ideas that are contrary to the word of God. We pick them up partly because our own sin natures cloud our thinking. We pick them up because we live in a culture that despises the word of God, that thinks it's foolishness. And when we come together and we submit to the word of God, Jesus, our faithful husband, washes us and cleanses us and purifies us. He forgives our sins and he teaches us what is right and true. And it's through the ministry of Jesus, our faithful husband, that he prepares us to meet him face to face. The Bible says that day the bride of Christ will appear in splendor without a spot on her. It'll be a joyful day a good and a beautiful day. And Paul takes that truth and he talks to the husbands of this church in Ephesus, the same church that Timothy is a pastor of, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You must sacrifice your own desires and wants, even your very life, if that's necessary, to meet the needs of your bride. So that she has everything she
1: needs. And friends, that truth
0: that Christ applies in the church and in the home is a truth that relates to how we function in the church. When Paul describes husbands as the head of the home, he is not giving abusive evil men, wicked authority over their wives to permanently victimize them. He is calling men to a a type of self-sacrificial love that allows their wives to thrive in joy because of the love they receive from a godly husband. And when we go and apply that type of thinking to the church, and the leadership that God calls men to have within the church, I believe it's right and good to remember the leadership of Christ is a model for husbands in the home, and the leadership of Christ is a model for pastors and elders within the church. That church leadership is never to be self-serving. Church leadership instead is always to be self-sacrificing for the good and building up of every member of the congregation. And I said this two weeks ago when I preached the first, seri- the first message on this passage, really just laying a foundation to go through it verse by verse. And I want to repeat this because I don't want anybody to miss this. There are godly women like Elizabeth Elliott and Alyssa Childers and Rebecca McLaughlin and Jackie Hill Perry and Nancy Guthrie. And locally in our church, women like D.R.C. Williams and Dory Nielsen and Anna Combs. I missed you two weeks ago, and I'm sorry about that. But Sue Lambert and Amy Paget and my wife Lauren and others who have been part of this church but have gone on before us, who have faithfully loved the Word and taught the Word. And I do not in any way want to minimize the spiritual benefit that the church globally and locally has reaped from godly women who have taught the word. One of my favorite pastors says this about men and women ministering together. He says, the fields of opportunity are endless for the entire church to be mobilized in ministry, male and female. I was reading a commentary, it's actually on 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. So there are three authors, and I do not know which author wrote the portion for 1st Timothy. So I normally am very careful to to give credit where credit is due when I quote somebody. I don't know who said this. I can tell you the book I got it from. But he said this, don't tell Lottie Moon. Some of you know who that is. Some of you, who's that? She is a famous missionary who had a huge global impact all across the world. Don't tell Lottie Moon or Amy Carmichael, who went to India, or Elizabeth Elliot or Kay Arthur, that they are sidelined in the church. These women have embraced exactly what the scriptures have outlined, and they have thrived for the glory of God through ministering in the church. And you find throughout the Bible, Passages like Romans 16. Maybe, maybe you've read the book of Romans. Maybe you're like, I've never seen that in my life. Paul describes some of the richest and best theology in all the Bible in Romans. You can learn not only the plight of humanity and how our sin has separated us from God, but you can also learn how God has planned his rescue. And you can learn precious promises like nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he gives amazing detail about the plan of God in history. And then at the end of it, there's this giant list of names of people that we do not know. And you might wonder, why is this even inspired scripture? Like we got the meat, what's this? You know, is this like the gristle that gets cut off and thrown away? Like, why do we have these names? You know what those names demonstrate? they demonstrate that Paul in no way was a lone ranger. He worked with people. And you find a diversity in those names of Jews and Gentiles and of men and women that were co-laborers with the Apostle Paul. In other words, the Apostle Paul is not a sexist monster. The men and women that he worked with are a testimony that the beautiful things he wrote about Christ and the church were lived out in his practice. And so you can look at the end of Romans, you can look at women like Lydia, who was a founding member of the church in Philippi. And all throughout the New Testament, find ways that women serve alongside men. You can look at the ministry of Jesus, and know that many of his followers and supporters were women. And so I'm about to read a text that forbids women from teaching in a particular context. And I don't believe that these verses
1: contradict anything that I've just said. So I want to read
0: my text and then spend the rest of our time this morning describing what I believe it means and what I believe it should say to us as our church. So if you haven't turned there already, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2.
1: and ask the Lord to bless us as we read his words. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 12.
0: Paul says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We're going to
1: take this in three chunks. I want to look at, first, the restriction that Paul gives us. Then I want to look at the reason for the restriction. And finally, I want to look at The redemption that's offered. So, three things we're going to see today is
0: the restriction, the reason, and the redemption. And to begin with, let's go back and look at verses 12. Uh, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. I believe that the restriction does not mean women are never to open the Bible and help other people understand it, both men and women. And part of the reason I believe that is because the Bible has examples of women doing just that. So, for one example, and this has not happened to me in five years, but my computer is giving me a hard time and I can't see my notes. And there have been few sermons where I wanted my notes more than this one. So if you'd excuse me for just a second.
1: There we go. In the book of
0: Acts, we meet a couple of co-laborers who worked side-by-side with Paul named Aquila and Priscilla. And I'm going to read you a few verses that describe how Aquila and Priscilla together ministered to another person. So this is from the book of Acts, and describes how a Jew named Apollos who was a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So same city here. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him The way of God more accurately. This passage is huge for a couple of reasons. Number one, it happens in exactly the same city that Timothy is a pastor in. So it's not a different context. It's not a separate city. It's the same city. And when Paul says to Timothy that he does not permit a woman to teach, he is not intending to prohibit Priscilla from doing what she did here. A couple things you got to know. When it describes Apollos as someone who was competent in the Scriptures and spoke accurately concerning Jesus, there's a really important qualifier there. It says, he only knew the baptism of John. Well, who's John? John the Baptist was a guy that came before Jesus, and the Scripture says he prepared the way for Jesus. He preached a fiery message of repentance. He said, God is about to do something, and if there's sin in your heart, you're going to miss what he's doing. And so John called people to ask the Lord to forgive them for their sins so that they would be open to the ministry of Jesus. And when it says that he knew only the baptism of John, what that means is he understood that Jesus was coming and he said accurate things about him from the Old Testament, but he didn't know that Jesus had died on a cross and risen from the dead. So imagine you're sitting in a church and a guest speaker comes in. And he starts preaching from the Old Testament and he's preaching with great power. And your eyes are open and you're understanding the word in exciting ways. He's taking difficult passages and making them clear. And you're like, this is awesome. And then at the end of it, you realize he never said a word about Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead. And you're like, that was great. But something so essential was missing. And so Aquila and Priscilla had that exact experience. And Scripture says they both took him aside and showed him more accurately
1: the way of God. And
0: Priscilla's ministry to him was one of completing a lacking education. So number one, the restriction that Paul gives is not making Priscilla's ministry to Apollos impossible. We see Paul working with a number of women. This type of ministry is not something he's prohibiting. He loved her and worked with her in several contexts. We see her name in a few different places throughout the New Testament. Number two, Paul also wrote a book to another young pastor named Titus. And in it, he clearly says this, and I'm just going to read part of two verses here. This is from Titus chapter 2. Paul says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train young women. Now, in Timothy, he said, I do not permit a woman to teach in a particular context, but in Titus, he's actually commanding older women, to teach. But there's an important qualifier of them. He says their ministry is to focus in particular on young women. And so I believe that in general, although there are clear exceptions, like Priscilla and Aquila taking Apollos' side, in general, women who teach are to aim most of their ministry towards other women when it's in a local church context. I want to be careful and not make a general truth into a universal law. You can get all kinds of trouble for that. That's not what I'm doing. I believe there's places where it is right and good for women to speak to the entire assembly. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, Paul is describing another circumstance and describes women praying and prophesying in the gathered assembly And he says that it's a good thing. And I would remind you that in this context, in this room, we have asked women to share their testimonies publicly. I especially do that on Easter Sunday. I think it's powerful when we have visitors here to hear a testimony of someone who was not a Christian and became a Christian and describe what it was like to meet Jesus. And I want to encourage and welcome men and women, young and old, to give testimonies like that in the context of a church. I think that's part of what Paul means when he's talking about prophesying there. So there is space within the context of the gathered assembly where I believe women can and must pray and prophesy if we are to be a biblical church. However, with all of that said, it's possible to spend so much time describing what this verse is not saying that we completely ignore what it actually does say. And so, saints, I want to lovingly, carefully suggest that this rule does apply to us today and that it is a rule that will bless our church, not hurt our church. I'll give you three reasons why I believe that's true. And they really relate to the the reason in just a moment. But I, I want to focus for a second on the command Number one, this restriction is not connected to anything local in the church. You say, how do you know that? Well, I did talk a lot about that the last message that I preached. But you don't have to do any historical digging to know that for certain. All you have to do is read verse 13. Because in verse 13, Paul gives you this beautiful little word, F-O-R, for. This is his reason. He's telling you the reason. It's not something for you to guess at, it's given to you in the text. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now this is not something that happened after sin entered into the world, this is something that happened when God created us and God called it good. And so I want to ask you to remember again how Paul describes servant leadership in Ephesians 5. His call for husbands like Adam is to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so the priority in creation is not making him superior, it's intended to make him a servant. He is to go first in battle, not because his wife is weak, not because she is not capable, but because it's his call to die for her in self-sacrificing love so that. She can live and thrive
1: in peace and joy.
0: Paul's reason is not connected to anything local. It's connected to the book of Genesis. Alistair Begg points out that when Paul is quoting Genesis, he's doing it the exact same way that Jesus did. He is quoting it as authoritative scripture that informs how to live our lives. Friends, Lots of parts of Scripture are not popular today. Many of them bother us. But the question that we have to ask ourselves and answer is, do we believe that God in His kindness gave us these instructions for our good? Because if we do, that means we have to be so cautious and careful before we explain them away or ignore them. This is not given to hurt. This is given to bless. The second reason I believe that this restriction applies to us today is that it's how the church has universally understood it until the last century. Some people have said to me, you know what, you're kind of young. Who are you to suggest that this is right? Well, I would say guys like Augustine and John of Chrysostom are over 1,500 years old. They're really, really old. And who are we in our youth? to say that they were wrong when they were trying to be biblically faithful. The history of the church demonstrates that this text does not just apply to Ephesus or to one particular culture. The history of the church suggests this does apply to every church in every place. And number three, the context of this verse shows it to be universally true. And I want to get a little bit ahead of myself and tell you what I'm going to be doing in chapter three. So Paul begins this discussion of how to behave in church the most broad way he can. He's addressing everyone. He says, I want in every place for people to pray. And he's very broad as he describes prayer as an essential foundation of our service. You may remember that's when we started meeting at 9.30 to pray before the service. Because I believe we need that foundation in our church. That's one clear application from this book that we are putting in practice now. So he begins broadly in a way that affects everyone. Then he begins to address men in particular in ways that men are sinful. Then he begins to address women in particular and ways that women are sinful. And says, hey, when we come into the church, we come in as sinners, but we don't remain that way. And God is giving us instructions for how to follow and how to relate to one another in a healthy, God-honoring way. And he moves from these general instructions to specifically talking about leadership. So he talks about the office of overseer, which I believe is the same thing as an elder or a pastor. gives qualifications for church leadership. You may remember, I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, ladies, you are not called to submit to every man in the church, period. Because many men who are part of the church are not in leadership and have no authority in the church. There's not a gender hierarchy here. Rather, The church is called to submit to the leadership that God instated in the office of elder and overseer. And so, men who are not elders and overseers are also called to submit to that leadership. He goes from describing the office of elder, overseer, or pastor, to describing the qualifications for deacons. And ladies, I believe this is one of the areas that the church has gotten wrong in the past, or I should say the modern church has gotten wrong, Both history and a careful reading of the text, I believe, opens the door for women to serve as deacons in some very clear and obvious ways. And again, not only a a careful reading of the text supports that, but a careful reading of church history demonstrates that truth as well. So I can say this is not my interpretation, but this is how faithful saints have understood this passage for centuries and even millennia. And then he begins to describe, okay church, you have your leadership in place, how do we follow our leadership? What does it mean to be a Christian in the context of a local assembly and a local body? And so with all of those things in place, I believe the context makes it very clear that this passage in chapter 2 verse 12 is limited to the context of a local church. And in particular, it is forbidding what I am doing right now. I do not believe it's appropriate for women to preach. But I want to be careful here, because Paul didn't use the word for preaching, he used the word for teaching. And so we've got to wrestle and parse, is there a difference? And how do we make certain that we permit what Priscilla did, because we don't want to limit women in ministry, but how do we make sure That we don't ignore this command in a way that would hinder and hurt our church. You might ask the question, how could we ever be hindered or hurt by ignoring this command? Wouldn't it just be a blessing to to encourage people to teach as broadly as they can? And, And sort of, you know, the cream rises to the top. Let your best teachers teach wherever they want to because they have calling and gifting. Well, I believe a couple of things need to be kept in mind. I do believe that reversing leadership roles will deeply damage the church. And I don't have to just say that as my opinion. I can point to churches that have reversed those roles for the past 50 years, and you can look at the fall of mainline denominations. Every mainline denomination that made this choice beginning back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, has been in rapid decline. And here's part of why I believe that's true. It goes back to Ephesians 5. And I would ask some of you who have struggled in in marriage, which honestly, that's all of us, right? Think about what happens when a man is absent in his home. Do his kids thrive? We all know the answer to that.
1: They don't. It leads to deep dysfunction.
0: It's obvious when they show up in school. It's obvious when they struggle in the workplace. When a dad is absent in the home, it deeply hurts his children. Now, listen if Paul's instructions in Ephesians 5 are demonstrating the best scenario for how to bless your wife and your children, His instructions for the church are describing the best scenario for how to bless the children of our church. And so when a church says gender distinctions don't matter, if a woman is called to ministry, we're going to let her serve in the pastorate or wherever she wants to serve, what that does is it creates absent spiritual fathers, and the church falls. It becomes obvious that church is not a place for men at all. Now, Saints, some people are concerned that, that I'm like super misogynistic and I want to create a church that's a bro culture. That's not it at all. I want a church where men and women are equally valued, where you can walk in and feel at home regardless of your age or gender, period. But that's not going to happen if we ignore God's clear instructions for us. So we've looked at the restriction, and I believe it particularly applies clearly. When teaching is done in an authoritative way, now you say, man, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to be honest. I think there's a wisdom issue here. There's a difference between Priscilla opening the Bible and saying, hey, look at this. Okay, She's doing that in private. But what I'm doing right now is very public. I'm calling all of us to account for what God has said in his word. And I'm not claiming that I have authority, but I am claiming that the Bible has authority. And that we have an obligation to obey it. And so what I'm doing is not just sitting down with you privately and saying, Hey, I want you to read this verse. I am publicly proclaiming and calling the church to account. Saints, God has said this. We ignore it or disobey it to our peril and harm. And I would point to our society in general and say, look at the confusion that people have. Look at the destruction that absent fathers have wreaked on their children in our culture. And I want to say that's also spiritually true in the church. The deep gender crisis that we have is not because women have taught. There's nothing wrong with that. The deep gender crisis that we have is that men have been absent and have not led. And so the reason I believe this verse is here for our blessing is in part, it's calling our men to step up and lead, not because they're men. Paul lays out clear qualifications. Most men are not qualified. It's hard to read through this and feel like, man, I got that. In fact, if you do, you're probably not qualified. The people who say that you're qualified should be the body of believers in their church. When you read this, you should feel like, man, I, I don't know if I can do that. But through the friendship and fellowship of your church, people ought to come alongside you and say, hey, have you ever thought about serving in leadership? Hey, I think, I think you're, man, I see something in you. I think God is calling you to do it. And as the church affirms your calling, they kind of push you into it. That's a healthy way to move into church leadership.
1: But I believe
0: that if we don't pay attention to this, we will continue to see a rapid decline across America as the church lacks clear leadership. And if you're wrestling with this, I want to ask you two questions. One is so obvious, but think about this
1: for a moment. Is it easy...
0: For a dad to teach his daughter how to be a woman? Think about single dads for a moment. Think about some of the rites of passage that young girls go through that a dad has never experienced. Is it easy for for him to teach her womanhood, or is it easier for a mom to model that and for female friends to teach her what it means to be a woman? Now, if that's true in the home, isn't it also true spiritually? That's why I believe in Titus. Paul says, older women, you need to teach younger women. Why? Because a young man has not lived and experienced life as a woman, and he's not well equipped to teach those things. I have the authority of the word of God, but I have no idea what it's like to actually give birth to a child. Never done it. I have no idea what it's like to be demeaned because of my gender, except in a few places. But those are exceptions for me, not the norm. And so a woman can come alongside another woman and speak from experience that a man lacks. And, saints, if we recognize that as being true for women, we must also recognize it as being true for men. And if men are called to lead in the home, They must see it modeled in the church. If they don't see it modeled in the church, they will never be able to do it in the home. And again, remembering that this type of leadership is not a self-serving, domineering leadership, but a self-sacrificing, I'm willing to say hard things from the word of God because I believe that they're for our good, even if it makes people mad. Because I believe that the word of God blesses us, it does not harm us. If we can appreciate that we need men in our homes, then we also ought to appreciate that we need men to lead in the church. I believe in spiritual war, just like in physical war, it is more fitting for a man to go to the heat of the battle and be wounded or even killed than for him to let a woman go first and die. We have a word for men who stay in safety While others go and fight, we call them cowards. And men, I believe that sometimes we have avoided conflict when we should not have. Instead, we should have been willing to openly talk about things. Friends, I've heard men say things kind of privately, like, Pastor, don't preach that verse. Don't go there. Don't even read it. And friends, that attitude suggests That this verse is going to hurt us and divide us. But no part of scripture will harm us. God is kind. This is for our good. And so, although a large part of me would have preferred to find a ship for Tarshish and, like Jonah, avoid church entirely today, I believe that going here is right and good and will bless our church. And I don't want to push some someone else up here and say, you need to say the hard things because I won't. We've looked at the, the restriction, probably not as much as we should, and, and we'll say more about that in a minute. We've looked at the reason for the restriction. Now I want to look at one of the most confusing verses, but point out this. This is a verse about rescue. This is a verse about hope. This is a verse about redemption. So. Paul has given two reasons why he does not believe women should lead in authority in the church. And then he says this in verse 15, and he's tied that back to Adam and Eve. And in verse 15, he says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. If you read commentaries, and I recommend that you do at some time, they are helpful, you will discover that. In trying to understand this verse, there are so many competing possible interpretations that it's overwhelming. I cannot list them all for you. I'm going to give you two, and I'm going to tell you which one I think it is. Here's what's clear. All people, men and women both, are saved through faith. And he talks about persevering in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. That's for men too. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he said, this is the gospel in which you are being saved if you persevere. And so he calls the whole church to persevere in the truth of the gospel. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, women, you will be saved if you persevere in the gospel. But what is he talking about with childbirth? Lots of women never experience childbirth. Two possibilities. One of them is this. And if you read Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, you see an example of a beautiful, amazing woman of God in the mother of Jesus, Mary. You see a woman who is humble, who submits to the Lord's plan for her life. And you see that as the angel describes, you're going to give birth to a baby boy, and he's going to save his people from their sins. She says, how can this be? But she never says no, and at the end of her encounter with the angel, said, "Let it be done unto me according to the word of the Lord." She beautifully believes the word of God and submits to it, and in her faith and in her obedience, the Savior is born and the world is saved. Now, some people think that this verse is referring not generally to childbearing, but specifically to the childbearing of Mary in having Jesus, who is our Savior, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's possible. There's one little piece of evidence that makes it more likely, and it's that in Greek, there's the word the right in front of childbearing. So it actually reads... The childbearing, and it's singular, so it might be pointing to a single childbirth. Maybe. Here's where I wrestle with that. I don't think that this passage, that's intended to give instructions for every woman, is actually pointing back to one woman's faithfulness, because he's calling women in particular in this these few verses, to persevere in faith, love, and holiness, and it seems strange that something that they did not do is something that they are saved through. Does that make sense? He says you're going to be saved through this, but that's not something they've done. That's something that someone else did. And so here's what I think is actually more likely, and I'm giving you two options because it's a hard verse to understand. The word through can mean a couple of different things. Prepositions are terrible words. Ask anybody who's ever tried to learn English as a non-native speaker. They're so confusing. That's why people make mistakes all the time, and we laugh at them. But if you try to explain the mistake, you can't do it. Well, this little word, through, could mean at least one of two things. So it could mean the way that a woman is saved is by having babies. Now, that is contrary to the gospel and absolutely not true. Uh, The gospel is all who believe are saved, period. So it cannot mean that the way you are saved is by having babies. That's one possible meaning of through. The other possible meaning of through is that you might be saved by enduring something dangerous and
1: something difficult, like
0: fire. Okay, so one of the things that is helpful in looking at a passage that's confusing is difficult. You can try to find examples that are similar to it grammatically, and Paul describes when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our works will be examined for all that we did and said, whether good or bad, and he describes a type of believer who did not do very many good things at all, and in fact, most of his life was wasted. And Paul says, this one will be saved as if through fire. So his soul is saved, but he's got nothing to show for his life on earth. And the fire there is something that he passes through, not something that he does. And I believe that that's far more likely the meaning of this verse and here's why. Point back to Genesis, okay? Paul has just talked about Adam and Eve. He's talked about the reason for this restriction is because Adam has been called to a type of leadership that means men in the church are called to a type of leadership. Not because they're different or better, but because they are called to a type of sacrificial service. But if you continue reading in Genesis, after the fall and after sin enters the picture, there is a curse and a consequence both for men and women. For Adam, God says, look, the ground is cursed. By the sweat of your brow you will labor all your life. You're going to tear a living out of the ground, and there's going to be thorns and thistles that you fight with, and it's going to be frustrating.
1: For Eve.
0: God says, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbirth. And that's part of her curse. And if you understand that part of her curse is the agony, not just of physically having the children, but of raising them and rearing them. Think again of Mary. Simeon says, "Your, your heart is going to be pierced with a sword as you see what Jesus experiences in his life. So the trial of being a mother is part of the curse that's come on humanity. And Paul is saying that curse is not the last word, period. The curse that has frustrated men and women for all of human history is not the last word for any of us when we trust in Christ. So if he were addressing this passage to men and not women, I believe he would say something about the frustration of fighting in dangerous situations. Imagine for a moment in our context the terrible difficulty of being a police officer and running to the front lines. And I recognize we've got men and women serving in the police. I'm glad we do. But imagine for a moment the difficulty of serving as a male police officer or as a soldier and the danger of that job and the frustration that no matter, even if you do what's right, people hate you. And they want you to resign and they want to get you fired. That's a frustrating place to live. And so I believe if Paul were addressing this passage to men, he would say, look, your job has been frustrated because of sin. You will be saved if you persevere in faith and love and holiness. The frustration that comes from the curse is temporary. Your salvation is eternal. But since he's speaking to women, he's bringing an aspect of the curse from Genesis into the life of the church. And he's saying, Look, ladies, the curse that you suffer under, there is hope that you will be saved through this curse. You might say, Well, okay, I'm not a mom. I've never had a baby. You still experience the pain of the curse, just like a man who's never been married experiences the pain of the curse, but in different ways. Paul is using this verse to say, Look, We're not second-class citizens in the church if we're not called to leadership. We're not second-class citizens in the church if we're not men. Instead, we have the same hope in the gospel. And so I want to end by reminding you of a verse in in the book of Galatians that some people have kind of used to say, look, you know, Paul doesn't say that there's a distinction. He does. He says it very clearly in 1 Timothy. But in Galatians, Paul is writing to a church that's wrestling with salvation. And they're wondering, you know, do I have to behave like a Jew if I really want to earn points with God? And can I be saved by keeping the law plus Jesus? And he writes them, he says, no. All of us are saved by faith in what Jesus has done for us. That is our hope, that our forgiveness is available freely as a gift from God. And then he says this, he says, For we are all one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free. All of us approach the cross the exact same way. Galatians isn't talking about how to organize a church. Galatians is talking about how are we saved. And that's how Paul ends this passage. Don't be discouraged. Don't feel like you're forbidden from ministry or leadership. You're not. Ladies, I believe you're called to serve in leadership as deacons. But trust instead that the grace of God is available to all of us equally, regardless of who we are. So I have two applications that I believe our church needs to hear for this passage. And here's my primary one. We do not currently have a team of elders recognized by the whole church to lead us in this. I said, I probably didn't say enough about verse 12, and here's part of why. I believe it takes a lot of wisdom to know the difference between what I'm doing right now and what Priscilla did in the book of Acts. I want to allow and encourage both in our church. And if I, as an individual, dictate exactly what we must do and where we must do it, I'm missing what God has described for the leadership of our church. One person cannot do that and should not do that. So all I want to do today is say, I believe this verse matters for us. I believe that we do need to follow it. I believe we need to establish a team of godly elders to help us understand exactly what that looks like in this church. I believe the plurality of elders will help so much as we wrestle with difficult things. So my primary application for this text is church, begin praying now that qualified men, not just any man, but qualified men, recognized by the whole church, would feel the call of God on their lives to lead us in teaching and praying and discipling every person in our church. I don't want anyone in our church to feel lonely. I don't want anyone in our church to be neglected. I want everyone to be closely knit together into a body that is full of love, united, regardless of age or gender. And I believe for that to happen, we need qualified men serving as elders. So church, begin praying that we would be able to experience that blessing. That the church would be able to identify who would serve. That as God calls men, they would respond to that call with humility and obedience. Here's my secondary application. My primary application is we need wisdom to help. We need qualified men leading to do this right and to do this well. Here's my secondary application. I believe we need to wisely follow the pattern established by God for men and women in the church. Not restricting ministry, but instead ensuring that every gifted person uses their gift for the glory of God and the good of the church. I want to be super clear here.
1: I do not ever want to discourage a
0: woman who has the gift of teaching from teaching. Period. I want to make sure that she uses her God-given gift to its fullest potential for the blessing of the church. But I also want to follow this pattern And I believe we need wisdom to understand exactly what that looks like in our context. One of the things that's weird and different is we have buildings today. And I never appreciated how much that does to the culture of the church until I thought about how strange it is that we divide ourselves up by age and sometimes gender and go off into different parts of the church. And now we're not really the whole assembled church. Now we're a small group of the church. So is that more like what Priscilla and Aquila did? Maybe. It could be. We, if we go across the hall and are in different rooms, that could be a very similar environment to what Priscilla and Aquila are doing. But the question is, I, like, I don't know. So how do we recognize in our space and in our time what is right and good and healthy and a blessing and what is not and what is beginning to get into dangerous territory where the church would ultimately be harmed? So the secondary application is I believe we do need to try to follow this as best as we can faithfully, ensuring that gifted people use their gifts. That's in a public setting. That's in a church-wide setting. But I believe we also need to press into our relationships. Men, if you are married, the command to love your wives is the foundation of your relationship with her, and you are to do that regardless of what she is doing. Women, the command to respect your husbands is essential. The Word of God says things to to ladies that are in difficult relationships. And I believe that the command to respect your husband is not a command that is intended to harm you or to permit pervasive abuse. But instead, it's an attitude that remains loving and patient. And as we pursue these relationships in our homes, they are essential in the life of the church. That's why Paul relates the two in Ephesians 5. So if we have healthy marriages, we have a better shot at having a healthy church. And if we have a healthy church, we have a better shot at having a healthy marriage. The relationship goes both ways. And saints, what I believe this passage is saying to us in First Timothy, is that we need to work on having a healthy church where men lead well for the good of our marriages and our homes. I believe that we need elders to guide us in the application of passages like these. And I believe that there are so many possibilities it would be foolish for me to speak to them all. One of the commentaries I read said this, and I, and I want to end here. We need to be clear where Scripture is clear and we need to be wise where Scripture is not clear. And so as we ask these questions, we want to examine our hearts and our culture and say, are we reflecting God's pattern in Scripture? And are we reinforcing God's priorities in the home? And the question that must guide us is this. Not what will work best, but instead, how can we be faithful to the word? Because I believe in faithfulness, we will find fruitfulness. Would you join me in prayer?
1: Father, I want to
0: praise you because your word is good. And I want to thank you for what you are doing in it and through it in our hearts and in our lives. And God, I ask that you would help us as we want to put this in practice. That you would give us wisdom for the blessing of our homes, of our children, of our community. And that the light of Jesus and the love of God for us would shine brightly as we seek to put this in practice. This is only possible with you working in us and through us. And so I ask for your help. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.